Hello and welcome to Individual Scholarships, Supporting Rising Stars or Defanging Movements and Legitimizing Donors. This podcast is produced by three Harvard Kennedy School students. I'm Becky Mayer, a Master in Public Policy candidate who has worked in criminal justice reform in the U.S. I'm joined by two of my classmates. I'm Inayat Sabiki, doing the Master's in Public Administration program. I've worked with the right to information and the right to food movements in India. And I'm Samar Hajuj, a Master's in Public Policy student who's worked in the education space in Palestine. And today we're going to be discussing the major foundations behind scholarships and fellowships, get into some juicy history, think aloud some critiques and alternatives, then chat about our own connections to this topic. So as people who are dedicated to social justice very broadly defined, in a school of public service, we started noticing that scholarships awarded to students tend to have a strong emphasis on leadership and service. Yeah, and among the funders who seem to embrace these narratives, there are several major philanthropic players. The oldest is the Rockefeller Foundation, around since 1917. They fund several hundred fellowships a year through multiple programs. Here's Per Olson, a researcher in Stockholm, describing their latest global fellowship program. Well, it's a capacity building programs for uh, these fellows that have been nominated by partners and organizations uh, that work within the Rockefeller Foundation uh, focus areas of digital jobs, uh, transforming health systems, and climate change resilience in Asia and Africa. Mm. Uh, well, they have been identified based on, on their achievements so far and also, also um, their ambitions. Mm. Uh, and uh, they've been identified as these change makers. Another big funder is Open Society Foundations, founded by George Soros, awarding over 400 fellowships and scholarships each year. Two OSF staff members have described how these scholarships are important, not just for scholars themselves, but also for donors and other purposes. I was excited to be part of the Commemorative Scholarship Panel because it feels like such a fitting way to commemorate 25 years of OSFSA and also to honor the philanthropy of George Soros. Scholarship is, uh, I think, is a great enabler. It does make a difference who generates, who creates knowledge, who owns knowledge. Then there's the Ford Foundation, which for over 12 years supported 4,000 international students from 22 developing countries. Their now discontinued International Fellowship Program was at the time of its launch at $280 million, the largest such program in its history. So. How do you equip those in the most vulnerable communities with the confidence and tools to make change? The Ford Foundation created the International Fellowships Program to do just that. The program, called IFP, educated local leaders living and working close to the challenges they wanted to solve. The Ford Foundation has in fact launched a new fellowship program this year called the Global Fellowship Leadership for Social Change. Coming to some of the newer entrants in this field, we have the Obama Foundation and Emerson Collective. In just its third year, there are already over a hundred Obama scholars and fellows. Here's President Obama on its mission. Our intention here is to identify folks who are 
right on the verge of really breaking out and, and doing big things and taking them under our wing and working with them so that uh, they can be even more successful than they already are. Finally, the newest fellowship for change makers is the Dial Fellowship given by the Emerson Collective. It was founded by Laureen Powell Jobs, the widow of Steve Jobs, and has an invitation-only process. So that's a lot of very credible names and big money investing in young change makers. What's really in it for the donors? Is it purely contributing to knowledge and social good? Universities clearly need these donors, so the demand is there, but we also have the supply. According to Giving USA, in 2019, higher education received about 60 billion philanthropic dollars. This is the second highest category that people give to, apart from religion. This interdependence becomes salient when allegations surface on the credibility of donors. MIT continuing to receive donations from the convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, who went on to publicize these, is a case in point. But there are others. It seems like rich people want to give to rich universities. Malcolm Gladwell in his podcast Revisionist History looked closer at the recent gifts to top universities, which were of $100 million or more, and he found that most of them went to the best schools in the world. So it's a win-win for the reputation of the donor and the university both. But what does it mean for the students who receive it? It can be like a mana from heaven, but what one doesn't realize is that universities need these students from social justice movements to honor what they're selling, which is a diverse classroom, peer learning, and so on. And the donors need them to declare that they're doing good in the world. Wow, this world of scholarships and fellowships is really complex to consider. So how did this phenomenon even begin? The history of scholarships and fellowships can be traced back to British and American tycoons who made their wealth in the mid to late 19th century. These capitalists, often but not always men, created fellowships and scholarships to promote personal, strategic, and imperial purposes. In the American West, some early scholarships were given by mining entrepreneurs. Henry Newell created the Henry Newell Scholarship, to support needy students from his home state of Utah to attend Stanford because his two sons were disinterested in higher education. And Enos Wall, on the other hand, wanted his fellowship to bolster his industry through the Wall Research Fellowship in Metallurgy. And the wives of several mining capitalists shared these personal motivations to give, including Phoebe Hurst, who took personal interest in meeting her female Berkeley scholars and Amanda Knight, whose name scholarships for quote-unquote deserving students at Brigham Young University demonstrated her personal affinity for the school. Across the pond in the UK, an array of traveling scholarships sought to develop the intellectual capital necessary at a time when science was closely linked with commercial success. Because these scholarships brought colonial students to study in Britain long before the foundation of the Rhodes Scholarships, they fostered students' sense of imperial citizenship, as well as an academic community, a sense of colonial loyalty, and at times alienation from their roots. 
Mm. There's actually a lot of literature on this, including the work by Dr. Joan Dassin, co-editor of a book on international scholarships in higher education. To your point, Becky, she says that initially scholarships played a huge role in building up an administrative elite in colonies familiar with this so-called first world culture. Then, during the Cold War, these scholarships were used as a tool of diplomacy, awarded by the East and West to win hearts and minds. Now, it plays the role of furthering a global capital agenda. As the writer Arundhati Roy says, today in countries like India, there is scarcely a family among the upper middle classes that does not have a child that has studied in the US. From their ranks come those who have helped, among other things, to open up the economy to global corporations. And in the US, we can trace the intellectual roots of these scholarships back to W.E.B. Du Bois's essay, The Talented Tenth. In 1903, Du Bois claimed that there is a one in 10 exceptional and college bred black man who is, and I quote, the group leader, the man who sets the ideals of the community where he lives, directs its thoughts and heads its social movements. And so this idea of the talented 10th took hold in philanthropic agendas and foundations like the Julius Rosenwald Fund which shifted its priorities from funding black students short-term, instrumental, and often industrial scholarships in the 1920s to later invest in fellowships for elite black intellectuals and professional leaders by the 1940s. Then decades later, the Ford Foundation practiced their elite theory of pluralism by investing in a managerial class of the best and brightest black leaders, a method and legacy not all too disconnected from Du Bois's talented tenth. There's been a lot of criticism of how Du Bois' theory ultimately played out, even by Du Bois himself, who began to admonish the black elite for not doing enough. Just a few years ago, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice was at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where she was asked to give a speech. In it, she criticized the current state of uh, education in the United States and invoked this idea of the talented tenth. During the Q&A, it was clear that some students wanted to push back on the idea. And I want to play a clip here from one of those students who asked a very pointed question about the failures of the execution of the Talented Tenth as, as an idea and how it played out in practice. How you doing? I'm Ryan, a student here at the uh, Education School. And uh, you, you spoke a bit about the importance of high expectations in your own life. And I wonder if this whole notion of the talented tenth has become antiquated. That mm. in fact, like, we're setting low expectations and that, yeah. you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that only a few of us, just the top of the surface, will make it out. And then we depend on them to come back and save the rest. Yeah. I, just, I, I wonder if you think that, um, you know, Souls of Black Folks is, is one of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm an alumnus of Morehouse and we will often talk about, um, was Du Bois speaking to his time and now we, we have to move beyond that or, or build upon that. And I just wonder if you could yeah. give a little bit of feedback. There. Great question. It's a really great question. This phenomenon that frustrated Du Bois is similar to what Andrea Smith discusses in her introduction to the book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. Incidentally, the inspiration for the name of this course. Smith warns that leadership training can redirect revolutionary movements into reformist ones by training selected leaders for bureaucratic rather than organizing roles. 
I'm wondering if either of you have experienced leadership development programs that have moved you away from your organizing work. Hmm. That's a great question. I think much of what HKS is criticized for, like training technocrats and policy wonks rather than training students to rethink systems and rethink the context in which policy is made, those critiques really speak to what Du Bois and Smith have warned about. Schools like HKS, known for their leadership development programs, can promote an individualistic rather than collective, collaborative, and humble lens on the world. Just this week, I was in a policy class where a professor told the students, and I quote, you are going to be the answer to our prayers. Your mission is to achieve success. There's no one you can turn to. You will have to figure it out. And I think this idea that you are an island, you have all the answers, and you're a lone expert is really dangerous, especially in a school of government. I couldn't agree more. This sense of individuals competing against one another on a relentless linear treadmill for achievements is certainly not everyone's lived experiences, particularly if you come from a social justice background where working and thinking collectively just come much more naturally. This is what Dr. Dassin also taps into while offering an alternative. She says that donors and universities highlight short individual stories and end up missing an extended analysis of the ways that students themselves conceive of the benefits of international education. Students are also part of multiple social groups that affect their post-scholarship trajectories. And this visual of a solo change maker is frankly a false social construct. And this sounds like a much longer term project to do this kind of shift in framing. If donors or universities even wanted to change tomorrow, what do you think they can do? Yeah, so I think they can begin by using their resources to build longer term relationships with social movements. So fellows can be nominated by the movement to attend grad school instead of selected by university admissions committee. In theory, this would increase the accountability and likelihood that a person would actually return to their mission and movement. Let's unpack that a bit though. While it would solve one kind of problem, I wonder if it would give donors more power to gatekeep not just individuals, but also social movements. Perhaps either of you feel differently? Mm. That's an interesting point. I, I do think we need to foreground movement culture in everything we do, whether it's education or politics. So earlier this year, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was asked if she would run for president, and she responded by shifting the focus away from her and to the movement that's being built. She later tweeted, and I'm paraphrasing here, that we shouldn't just invest in elections and re-elections. We should be investing in political education and movement building, creating spaces and communities that put power back in the hands of everyday people. I think she makes a great point. Rather than stipulating a vague commitment to some cause, fellowship requirements should be more intentional and, and recruit individuals committed to, for example, health care access for undocumented people. When you have a more cohesive fellowship group, there's a level of accountability that glues people to the cause. There's a stronger cohort bond, a bond that would endure beyond the fellowship timeline. I would say that a true movement-oriented fellowship would even go one step further and ensure fellows have shared values and an attainable baseline goal. 
Currently, the leadership model tends to overly rely on fellows learning from one another with the intent to copy what's working, rather than collaborating with one another with the intent to strengthen the overall movement. And so what you find is that networks are scattered and divided simply because of how broad they are. If philanthropic investments promoted collaboration across multiple organizations within a particular movement, this would lead to an exponential increase in overall impact. By investing in relationship building across multiple organizations and social movements, working on similar goals in a particular region, foundations can actually promote sustainable solutions to these multifaceted problems. So to bring this all together, uh, maybe we can reflect on our own experiences. Uh, the million dollar question here is, do you feel like a change agent? <laughs> To me, that question can especially be explored in the context of academia. Do I feel like a change agent because of a scholarship or because a scholarship has recognized me as such? And when I understand it this way, the question of feeling like a change agent that you asked is more about feeling recognized or feeling in some way elite, which to me is exactly counter to the ways in which the world needs to change. And this underscores another question, which is what is the value add of a public policy degree or a Harvard Leadership Development Fellowship to someone coming from a social change movement? And as both of you are about to graduate from one such program, is there something you feel differently about now than when you accepted this fellowship to be here? I do have a lot more appreciation now for our rights-based work in India as part of a larger historical and intersectional context. And also for the persistence really required for the much longer timelines for any kind of real change, whether it's um, building people's political power or holding the powerful to account. It's the work of a lifetime, basically. So I've been freed of any kind of complex I might have had of projecting a scripted, checking the boxes kind of life. I'm also much more aware now of my relative position in the spaces I'm in. As a person with a considerable amount of privilege, an important part of my work going forward is actually going to be passing the mic and getting off the stage and making space for others. Um, there might be some irony here since I received a fellowship as an emerging leader myself. Yeah, yeah. This, this leads us to the big alpha in the room. Uh, do students actually go on to change the world? Um, and the, the truth is there's no way to really know because anything can count as change. Uh, I wonder actually if universities and donors uh, should take some responsibility when either the education they provide or its costs steers students away from their original mission. Mm. Yeah. So where do we go from here? None of this seems to suggest that, you know, scholarships and fellowships should be stopped tomorrow. What we do know is that far greater thought must be put into the purpose and the impact of philanthropy for scholar activists and for movement university relations. Collectively, we hope that this podcast can be just the start of these conversations. Signing off, I'm Becky I'm Anayak Sabiki. And I'm Sam Hajuj. And we'll see you out there on the streets. <laughs>